welcome this edition of the Perspectives of Inflammation podcast, a series brought to you by the CSF, which shines a spotlight onto experts in the field of inflammation and their research interests. My name is uh, Professor Michael Weinblatt from the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and joining me today is my good friend, Professor Paul Emery from the Ver University of Leeds, UK. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Michael. So, Paul, you've been at Leeds uh, for almost 30 years, since 1995, and under your stewardship, it has grown into a world-leading center for rheumatology research. Could you tell us a little bit about the unit and its key areas of research? Thank you, Michael. Yeah, um, yeah I went to Leeds because basically of the patient groups there. We have a secondary care population, which we look after uh, universally for about one and a half million, and a tertiary population around five million, which means we have to provide everything. And uh, from the start there, my priority was getting well-defined phenotyped uh, cohorts, initially in inflammatory arthritis, but now covering all the uh, immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, lupus, scleroderma, uh, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome. And basically, in the inflammatory arthritis program, uh, we study these patients. We've been involved in a lot of uh, investigator-initiated studies with new therapies. The other side of it is that we're, I'm director of the biomedical uh, center there, which the uh, NHS funds for research. And we do a lot of work with medical devices, uh, joint replacements. We have a, a very big program there, and also in osteoarthritis. So, Paul, can you tell the group a little bit about what drew you into rheumatology and where you moved before you got to Leeds? Yeah, sure. The, um, what drew me to rheumatology basically was seeing patients long term. I, I had intended to be a cardiologist, but uh, it was very contrasting, the fact that you looked at an angiogram and never really spent much time with a patient whereas the rheumatology patients were amazingly grateful for your attention. And also it was clear to me that, there, that most of these were reversible diseases. At the time, we only had steroids, but as you know, later we developed what was, were essentially targeted steroids, which allowed the same benefits without the toxicity. We didn't know that was going to occur, but I did feel there was a large chance that we would see major developments in, developments in rheumatology. So I did that uh, after coming down from Cambridge at Guy's and uh, we set up early arthritis clinics there which were very poorly attended actually. It was very difficult to get patients. Um, I then went to Melbourne and did more early arthritis with a bit more success. But it was um, when I went to Birmingham that we really set about seeing patients early because we were convinced that if we could see them early, even with the drugs we had available then, we would be able to do something about preventing damage. And we spent a lot of time when I set up the unit there, phoning up to 3,000 GPs, writing to them continuously, telling them that we would see patients urgently. And when I went there, we had a waiting list of 18 months before we could see a new patient. And we got that down to three months over a period of about a year. And that's what we've been aiming at since, to try and see patients at the earliest phase of disease. And I would like to explore a little bit more this issue of the earlier arthritis clinics. Before I do that, when you were in training in your early development, were there 
couple key rheumatologists who mentored you along or provide you inspiration on your career? I suppose the most influential person uh, was Gabriel Panay, who was at the time quite a revolutionary in rheumatology. He came from a scientific background and rheumatology up until then had been uh, aligned with rehabilitation and was basically tuned into alleviating pain and managing chronicity. Uh, whereas uh, Gabriel was very keen to intervene to make a difference and understand the pathophysiology. And it was that that drew me to rheumatology. So when you went to Leeds and started the, really started moving forward with the early arthritis clinics, was part of that due to the, as you mentioned, the huge waiting lists to get to see a rheumatologist and partly due to the fact that you thought that starting people earlier on drug therapy would make a difference? Uh, well, it was the latter. It was trying to see patients early. And in Birmingham, we actually had a, a very large early arthritis clinic. And most of the guys and the nurses came with me when I went to Leeds, actually. So we, had, we sort of hit the ground running in Leeds. Um, but, yeah, since that time, uh, fortunately, I think it's become accepted practice to see patients early. And now the reimbursement from the government uh, is dependent on starting or the optimum reimbursement is dependent on, on starting uh, patients in the first few weeks of disease. And uh, I, I think everyone now believes that that is the correct thing to do because you can do it before damage. There's been arguments about the window of opportunity um, and whether you really make a qualitative difference early. There are now some data that suggest that the numbers you get into drug-free remission are very dependent on that early phase of disease. How good are the primary care doctors now and the, as far as referring you patients that actually have inflammatory arthritis versus those that have fibromyalgia or osteoarthritis? Well, obviously, that's the key question. And uh, when we first started, we had fairly strict rules. They had to have a swollen joint. They had to have positive serology. As we got greater capacity, we were happier to see patients who had symptoms, in other words, stiffness in the hands and the feet. Uh, and it depends on you, how much you, uh, facility you have, what capacity you have to see patients. What is interesting, you can make a lot of difference to a lot of patients, even if they have non-inflammatory disease or inflammatory disease that's not rheumatoid. So now we have a, a greater capacity. We are quite happy to see other patients because you can manage them quite quickly. Uh, but our priority is inflammatory disease and uh, uh, primary care is the key. We spent years telling GPs that arthritis was potentially treatable and that not to go on prescribing repeat prescriptions of anti-inflammatory drugs because if they were working, there was probably inflammation present. But now we, we spend our time getting uh, GPs to actually test for uh, ACPAR or CCP. And we see patients before they get uh, synovitis, which is our, our big program these days. And uh, going forward, one looking at your you know, impressive uh, CV, obviously one big area has been the concept, not just of early intervention, but treat to target and reducing disease activity. Um, you were the, one of the first to actually incorporate remission criteria or remission definition into clinical trials with the COMET program. Um, do you think our current definition of clinical remission is viable today? 
and can we induce that in most of our patients? Um, well, as you know, as well as anybody, Mike, the um, old definitions using DAS-ESR or DAS-CRP uh, incorporate uh, uh, abnormalities that we wouldn't normally consider as remission and more stringent criteria used. We try and use the most objective criteria and um, we use traditionally imaging in all our patients, either MRI or more commonly ultrasound. And that's made a big difference. I don't think most people would call patients in remission these days if they had very florid synovitis, regardless of their clinical features. The trouble is that all the composite definitions include joint counts and in near remission, joint counts aren't very accurate. So we incorporate not only imaging, but also immunological parameters. And we found those very helpful, particularly uh, when you come to tapering therapy. You can't taper therapy if there's underlying active disease that that becomes active. Uh, and remission is certainly the target of all our uh, therapies. It's surprising patients treated in a standard fashion how poorly they, they still do. The, the, the fit patients that go into studies do pretty well, but we get a lot of comorbidity or multimorbidity. And often the limiting factor is what these patients will tolerate in terms of drug therapy. Um, Paul, what, one of the questions I think we all want to know is your view about, since you've identified that even though patients may have improvement or resolution of their painful and swollen joints on ultrasound, Many of these patients still show, or MRI still show evidence of synovitis. Are you at a point now where you are adjusting drug therapy in someone who's got no swollen joints but still has ultrasound evidence of disease? What, what do you do in those patients? Um, well, it depends what they're taking. If, if they're taking uh, a drug which probably isn't as effective on the cartilage and bone, then we might add, uh, and often we just inject the joints, actually, to be mm -hmm. honest. If they're on one of the biologics, which are pretty effective at inhibiting any damage, uh, I think you've got to, to think uh, very hard before escalating therapy. If they're well, their quality of life is good, and even if they have got subclinical swollen joints, the, uh, as you know, there's a there number of studies, we've just reviewed several of them, um, some uh, what there there is quite a good study which has actually just shown that if you from Norway that if you have subclinical uh, osteitis on MRI despite being clinically normal escalation of therapy in those patients actually produces much better long term remission. So in an optimal world, um, you would actually tailor it to the individual. Um, Obviously, with huge numbers of patients, you have to actually yeah, work out what's most cost efficient for the patient and society. You know, and you know, today we're we're blessed by having an incredible number of novel therapies. Not even novel anymore. Twenty years since the TNFs were introduced um, in clinical practice. How do you make a decision about which drug mechanism you're going to go to? Whether it's one of the injectable therapies, one of the biologics, whether it's one of the new oral therapies, the jaconims. Do you have any bias about that? Or does the government tell you what to do? It, it is now one of the biggest questions. If you are, are not going to uh, be satisfactory on conventional synthetic DMARDs, what where should you go? 
Uh, I turn it around a little bit. We're increasingly trying to predict non-response to the conventional synthetics before patients actually fail them, in which case they will be first-line agents. And I think first-line agents, if you're using either target synthetics or the biologics, the, the questions we have as a nationally funded uh, group is what is the most cost-effective. And at the moment, we're very lucky with very cheap biosimilars. So we're, that our bias at the moment is to go to, to the biosimilar TNFs um, as first line. When we're giving them after methotrexate failure, uh, you're looking more at getting efficacy. And the, you know there are arguments in favor of the, the, the JAK inhibitors then. Uh, the well-known issues with the JAK inhibitors, some of which are going to be soluble, like uh, shingles, uh, herpes zoster with the vaccines. And I think the case for the vaccines is getting quite strong now. We don't have Shingrex here yet. Um, it's approved in Europe, but we don't have access to it. But we were, we're hoping to, to be starting studies of that. And I think that will come as routine in future. And I suspect patients, when they get diagnosed, will get the vaccine in the future. So it's complex. And uh, the, uh, I think we're lucky. We, we have these alternatives. We still have a large number of patients who have failed huge numbers of uh, DMARDs sometimes three jack inhibitors these days uh, and they are complex which is all the more relevant why we we try the increasingly to see patients almost before disease because we know they do even better than the ones treated uh, after six weeks and you know you've, you've worked with all of the jack inhibitors that are approved to date um, where do you see their role in five years from now well, they are very effective as first-line agents. Um, I think if we can... The, the, the issue of uh, thromboembolism still hasn't been sorted out. Uh, we know the high-risk factors for those, but the high-risk factors include many of the features of rheumatoid arthritis, high disease activity, obesity, smoking, um, and steroid use as well. But the... Uh, I think we will target much more the therapies to the individual characteristics of the patients. And what about, I mean, one of the exciting things I think about the, the JAK inhibitors, very much like the TNF inhibitors, is their potential use in a variety of diseases. If you had to look outside of rheumatoid arthritis and ANXPON and PSA, where do you think the JAK inhibitors might play a potential well, we, role? Yeah, you're right, Mike, because the... It, it, they have this widespread effect through the, their mode of action on multiple enzymes. And the patients who have multi-diseases, let alone multi-morbidity, are clearly ones who would benefit it. Patients, um, patients with psoriatic arthritis, with bad skin and bad joints, who sort of alternate between 17 in, uh, inhibitors and uh, uh, TNF inhibitors, they're clearly the ones, and also people with bowel disease, and uveitis, and so on. They, they are, you know, they are very uh, widespread in their efficacy, and um, perhaps we'll see them with more than the 13 indications of some of our TNF inhibitors. Where do you think um, the specialty is going? If you had a look, I won't even use 10 years, because I think things are changing so rapidly. But over the next, you know, five to six years, where do you think we're going to be going in rheumatoid arthritis? 
Well, the one characteristic of all our patients is there's a very long prodromal period where they have autoimmunity, they have, and in the case of rheumatoid, uh, they have localized autoimmunity in their mouth, their gut, their lungs. And we increasingly are able to pick up patients at that stage. And we've just recently validated the risk score of these patients in a new population of 400. Uh, so we know not only which patients will get rheumatoid, but when they'll get it. And um, we're now doing trials of quite interesting agents in these patients. Uh, I'd like to hope that even if we don't cure the disease, we might slow it down a bit. So I, I think it will become fairly routine to be seeing patients in the, the pre-disease phase and hopefully stabilizing disease at that stage. Um, on a uh, practical issue, you know, in the United States, we've seen a significant reduction in total requirements for total joint arthroplasty in our patients with RA. I assume you're seeing similar reductions in the UK. Yes, there's, uh, the best data have come from Scandinavia, but it's true. And, you know, the, the, the timing of, to, to be fair, that there was an improvement almost slightly before, but I think two things have happened. One, we've had these agents which are very good at preventing damage, but it's also made us much less tolerant of leaving, leaving patients with active disease. So mm -hmm. the targets have improved enormously. And yes, as a consequence, uh, joint replacement for rheumatoid has gone right down the list. Um, I think it's way behind revision arthroplasty. What do you think the great challenges are now in the management of patients with RA? I think it's still, uh, well, ideally, as I said, I, I would love to show that prevention actually works. Uh, we've got to accept it may not, but it, I think it will still get patients treated very quickly. I think that will improve remission rates and would also allow us to get patients onto smaller amounts of therapy. Um, the thing that really is striking is there are still a, a sizable proportion of patients who end up resistant to all therapies. I think if we get better at treating early, that will reduce, but identifying the truly resistant patients early, I think is the other aspect of it. Um, and so if people are concentrating on the features that allow you to, to identify those, and perhaps identify those who should get different types of therapy earlier, B-cell depletion therapy earlier, uh, but I, I think the big change will come when we actually see all our patients and don't tolerate anything but remission or near remission in the first six months. Do you tell your patients that your expectation is that you'll be able to stop drug therapy or do you think most of these patients are going to require some background treatment, particularly if they're autoantibody positive? What, what, what's your view about that? Well, if I told them they were going to be off therapy, uh, in the majority of cases, I'd be telling them lies. So I'm, I'm usually truthful with them and say that, we, you know, they have a treatable disease. Uh, the chance of them getting into remission is now much higher. It should be higher than 50%. And then with aggressive therapy, it's higher than that. And that if we get them into remission early, they have a chance of reducing their therapy and possibly even stopping it. But stopping is still in true rheumatoid as opposed to people with joint pain uh, is still rare. It's five to 10% of even the best studies. Mm -hmm. 
Is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? Um, no, I think rheumatology has been a, a fantastic experience. I started uh, over 40 years ago when everybody came to clinic in an ambulance or a wheelchair. We had penicillamine and gold and uh, all we could do was minimize the side effects. Uh, you and I have been extremely lucky to be part of uh, the uh, revolution that's occurred in therapy for rheumatoid. And we've, you know, rheumatoid has been the model for non-infectious inflammation and drugs that have been started in rheumatoid have been affected in a lot of other areas. So we've had a huge experience. And as part of that, the whole thing's expanded. You know, I've been lucky enough to train over 30 professors and associate professors and hundreds of trainees. And it's wonderful seeing these people all around the world uh, doing and being very excited by their work, which is, I think, the most important thing, and exciting people about research. So, it's, you know, I was, when I was looking through your, you know, your resume, it brought back a memory that we did one of the first combination biologic synthetic studies, I don't know, 30 years ago when we combined gamma interferon with depenicillamine. Um, yeah. Two terrible drugs. Um, but the idea back then of combining a synthetic with a biologic was not something people were terribly excited by. And look, today, I mean, routinely someone's on methotrexate or another synthetic and a biologic or a JAK inhibitor is being added to it. So, you know, I think what, what you've done in your 40 years of research has changed the field of rheumatology. And uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you this morning. Um, I just remember, Mike, that study... That's where the placebo had over 50% response rate. Yeah, and it was important to be able to tell people that if you start to inject people, you better expect a higher placebo rate because of the injection. Yeah. So. Well, thanks very much for this conversation.